Between Two Lines podcast, talking about performance, life and everything in between. Featuring your hosts, Johnny Stahl and Ash Hamilton. On this week's episode, we welcome Alex Effort to the mic. Alex is a certified exercise physiologist, strength and conditioning coach, and is a real wizard when it comes to human movement. More importantly to us though, Alex is an absolute legend of a man and is a lovely human to chat to about all aspects of life. Offline, we're actually busy talking about the stock market and travel, which just highlights the well-rounded nature of this man. In this episode, we take a deep dive into particular movements and movement limitations among humans. And as much as it's quite intense, it's an absolute banger of an episode, and I have no doubt you'll all enjoy it. So here we go. Let's tuck into it. Thanks for joining us, Alex. How are you, mate? Everything's good, man. Appreciate it. Uh, appreciate you guys having me on. It's uh, it's a cold Canadian winter, so we're just trying to move past it. But yeah, that is great. How about you guys? I'm brilliant. I'm brilliant. How about you, Ash? Yeah, I'm good. The sun's uh, looks like the weather's actually going to be good today, so uh, can't get out to the beach. We're I was just saying before we got here. on, Ash is all tanned. So jealous. <laughs> I love the fact that we're between us, where they're almost a day apart between Berlin, Toronto, and Melbourne. So I love that we've covered that and managed to make it work still. So appreciate appreciate Great. both of you for that. How about um, you just give us a little bit of a background about you? What sort of I guess you, you've been on a lot of podcasts, so a lot of people probably know about your path and that sort of stuff. Maybe something a little like, I guess, the alternate route or how you got into what you did, what sort of actually drove you more internally. So less maybe from the university perspective or an educational perspective, but more like what were your intrinsic drivers, your passions to lead you to where you, do, where you are today, obviously being massively into education and guiding other coaches and therapists? Yeah, so that's a great question. I think... Um... You know, when I was going through the university route, I actually did want to be a physiotherapist and I'm not that there's anything wrong with it or anything like that, but I was kind of, you know, when I was going through the actual clinical route, I wasn't enjoying some of the stuff that I was learning. And maybe that was just the places I was going to, but it just seemed very much like a cookie cutter approach where this person had a rotator cuff injury here's a set of exercises, just no assessment being done. It's like, here's a laser, let's do an ultrasound and let's just do some banded rotator cuff stuff. And for me coming from a, you know, a, a sports background, I was playing competitive hockey. I played rugby in high school. Um, I played growing up, played really every sport. It just made no sense to me. And it just wasn't as challenging as I wanted it to be. I was, I've, I've always been somebody who, wants to seek out answers and understand complexities and try to break it down to more simpler parts. To me, the way that they were doing it, it didn't seem like there was a lot of thinking or a lot of complexity. And so I was really kind of pushed away from that. And then as any other kid going through university or, or college or anything like that, I wanted to work with professional athletes because I played competitive sports. It's like, all right, I want to go to the NHL, like the hockey you know, National Hockey League. I want to get into to, to uh, work with the Leafs, which is the, the, the local team. But, you know, when, what I started to figure out is that it's, it's a lot more difficult to get into that position. You really have to know people. Yeah. And, and so for me, what I did is instead is, you know, I applied to this local clinic near me and 
I worked with stroke and MS and Parkinson's. And so it was a very neurological clinic, something that I had no plan on doing, right? I went to school, I graduated from school and, you know, um, I know eventually, I think you guys are going to ask me like what my biggest mistake was, but for me, <laughs> a big mistake was I thought I knew everything coming out of school and working with that population. I realized I knew nothing because everything that I would use from a sports performance standpoint or from a higher level exercise standpoint, that's out the window, right? <laughs> Cause I'm working with people who have no neurological control of their joints or of their extremities. And so I really had to rethink my process. And, you know, from there, um, I was also working with sports performance uh, gym. So half my day was going towards a neurological clinic. The other half the day was going towards a sports gym clinic or a sports gym. And, you know, I was able to integrate both systems together, which was really my first exposure into there's no one system. It's really context dependent. And so from there, that allowed me to explore other avenues or other way of thinking. And so I started taking a bunch of different courses from different places and um, more specifically, like a lot of uh, courses that were in the States in Europe that weren't being held in Canada. And so by me taking these courses, people were like, okay, well, you know, these things that other Canadian therapists or trainers don't know because they're external information, like taking DNS, PRI, SFMA, all these other courses. So I had more of an integrated approach early on, which has really helped me. And um, yeah, took all of that, worked at different clinics, worked for the university setting. And now I work for myself. I consult half the day. I work with clients one-on-one and I do a bunch of education based on basically teaching people not to make the same mistakes I did. <laughs> <laughs> That's awesome. Um, I'm really curious, Alex, like the way I view you is someone who loves the complexities, but they break it down into a digestible, easy format for people to, to learn. And obviously for your clients to be able to take it on. Mm-hmm. And you, you talked about obviously making a lot of mistakes when you went into like the neurological, I guess, field. Was there something that's happened? Because I feel like there's a common theme between people that really search to understand. Because I think there's, there's, there's people that obviously love upskilling and want to learn and learn and stuff like that. But I think there's another type of people that really want to get focal and understand the whys and everything like that. And I've found that for my myself included, it's usually someone who's gone through you know, some health stuff or some, maybe some complex uh, presentations themselves and other people weren't able to figure them out. And you really had to kind of search being like, how do all these systems kind of come together to figure this, this problem out? Was there something in particular that kind of drove you to really want to see how all these systems interrelate um, and kind of really get focused on sometimes the minors? Because while I don't believe majoring in the minors is always needed, I think that there comes a time when there's certain presentations where you need to understand those minors to then be able to step back out and help that individual. So was there something that kind of really drove you and really sparked that interest to really understand those, those details? Well, I think from a young age, um, I've always been somebody who wants to question things and probably to a fault. I was the kid who, you know, if you told me to do something, I'd ask why. 
right? Not just to be, you know, a pain in the ass or anything like that, but um, because I was curious. I just- I wish I had more of that earlier though. Yeah. To be honest. Yeah. Well, it's, I, I really don't know what it stemmed from. I think it was just, you know, I think part of me was probably trying to be a pain in the ass. And the other part of me was curious, like, why do I have to do this? Right. And, you know, I think to answer your question, um, I worked at a clinic where all the people that I was seeing had, had seen four or five different clinicians or trainers. Um, and so it was my job really to provide a different viewpoint. Really what I would do is if they'd seen four or five different people, I would ask them, what are the things that they've told you? What are the things you've already done? That way I can clear out all the stuff that they've done. I don't have to redo anything. Um, and so for me, being in that environment allowed me to, you know, these clients were obviously more complex. They were persistent pain or they had recurring injuries. And so for me, I had to think outside the box because it was my job essentially to understand why they were feeling this because a lot of these people were going after the symptoms and, you know, chasing pain. And when they would overcome one issue, it was like, you know, plugging one hole of the boat and the other part starts to leak. Right. So it was, it was because of this environment, I really had to think outside the box. I had to research into different ways of thinking, different systems. Um, and, you know, early on also, I was, I reached out to a lot of people um, that were in the field already. So I guess mentors, you can call them or indirect mentors, just by listening to podcasts who were thinking outside the box already. And because of my search for understanding complexity and wanting to challenge myself, otherwise I'd be kind of bored. Um, I really wanted to understand how they thought the way they did because the way that they thought was more like looking at a body as a puzzle piece, right? Understanding how each of these pieces fit together in order to make this picture. And so the way that I always look at it is that you've got, you know, if you're building a puzzle, for example, you're looking at the picture on the box. That's the ideal representation of what you should be achieving. I am given a body that has a bunch of pieces all over the place. I've got to put it together. Mm. So for me, each system of thinking or different parts of my perspective equal to one of those pieces. And so I would make tons of mistakes doing this for sure, because the reality is, is you learn the information and then you have to logically apply it to the context you're in. And a lot of people, which you've probably seen, a lot of people do not fit any model, right? They always, you know, disrupt or they always are the exception to the model. And then, yep. you know, and then the person's answer, like, like the system that presents it to you, their answer is, oh, you probably didn't do it right. It's like, no, trust me. Like this person has had a stroke. They cannot feel their left leg. There's no chance getting them on their left side, right? Um, so it was, it, it just, a lot of my failures, I guess, led me to understanding these things. And because these people were in, you know, some complex situations in terms of like their body presentation, which deceived even a lot of doctors didn't know what the heck was going on. I really had to research what the condition was that they came in with 
what is the current, like in research, like what is the current protocols that they used? And if you look at the protocols, they're really like old school, you know, like for example, your knee, it's like a terminal knee extension. It's like, all right, well, yeah, that's, that's a very local way of thinking. So I guess, you know, to answer your question is from the complexities of the people that I was working with at the time that allowed me doing it. And the mixture of, Hey, I'm working at a clinic part-time the other half of the time I'm working with professional athletes who I can't get them to breathe on their back, you know, doing a breathing drill. How do I modify their squat in order to achieve the same results as potentially somebody I'm trying to get airflow into their back for somebody who's, you know, pain ridden or bed ridden, right? So how can I manipulate the different environments using the same principles? And so, yeah, I think a mixture between environment, um, mentors over the years and combining different courses, but the way of thinking that I guess I'm doing by thinking of it this way is a lot more tiring, I guess you could say, because it's a lot more conscious. So it's, it's definitely harder, but if you understand how systems work, you'll understand how the body works because it's just, just an integration of systems. Do you, do you find that, or, or did you find, or if you look back in hindsight now that there were perhaps like common presentations among many of those patients with, let's say like autoimmune diseases or um, neural based conditions or something like just, I, I know where I'm being very, very general here, but Ash and I spoke about this last week about the potential, and this is like an open-ended question or topic really, but like the potential for commonalities among those patients or those people with those presentations. And maybe that's that, you know, there was a traumatic incident that, um, that, you know, different, different traumatic incident, but they, they all had a traumatic incident at some point in the past, or maybe it was just largely a process of negative thinking. And I know I'm being very, very much the generalist here, but you get what I'm at, what I'm getting at yeah. with the, the question. <clears throat> have, have you thought in detail about that retrospectively and, or were there, was there anything that you could like, like, could you draw commonalities among that? Um, yeah, I think with anybody that I work with, I try to identify patterns, right? It's like, okay, well, this person is producing less internal rotation of their right hip. What does this mean? And then you see it pop up with other people like, okay, reduction internal rotation. Okay, what exercise could potentially lead to this? And it, it almost becomes algorithmic um, in a way, which, you know, a very flexible algorithm you know, nothing rigid where it's like, okay, if there's internal rotation here, we definitely got to do this exercise. It's, it's not like that at all. Um, from an autoimmune perspective, one thing that I really focused on was the nervous system and understanding how I could get a nervous system response. So for example, um, one thing that I would always do is I would always ask them, what do they feel? Like if they're standing, for example, where do you feel the pressure on your feet? And it's crazy, the majority of them had to look down at their feet because they had no reference of their feet on the ground. They, could, they didn't understand where they were in space. So what I found is that anytime I was trying to get them to do exercises where I say, okay, I want you to press your heel here. I want you to press your back. They could not do it. There was just no neurological connection, no neurological awareness. 
um, because an autoimmune disorder is a threat to the system, right? Pain is a perception of threat, whether that is actually happening or there's a psychological aspect to it where we think something is happening. And so what I had to do was my intention was always to try to bring them consciously to focus on one specific area. Whether you're talking about colitis, you're talking about some type of thyroid issue, you're talking about, um, you know, Crohn's, you know, all these different auto or type two diabetes, sorry, type one diabetes, all these different areas, they're all a threat to the system. And so we have to rewire that by trying to regulate another system in order to take on the job that that system is not doing. So for example, it's like, hey, the ankle is not dorsiflexion. Okay, well, the knee is going to try to have to make up that loss of range of motion. And that's where we start to get knee issues. Very simple way of thinking of it. And it's yeah. definitely more complex. But what I would say is that the loss of neurological connection with different parts of their body, that is something that I have found. And what that then presents as is reduction in, in range of motion because range of motion is just a representation of your brain's ability to stabilize the system or your brain's ability to control the body. And so I always looked at it from the, from the lens of when I'm measuring this range of motion, I'm measuring the nervous system. How can I change this joint position to regulate the nervous system so that it can actually feel safe? Does that make sense? Yeah, absolutely. That's super yeah. insightful because it, it bypasses <laughs> it bypasses virtually every sports science or physical therapy degree of any of that sort, I would say, in terms of yeah. what range of motion is, what mobility is, what's stability, yeah. flexibility is. It just bypasses all that. It says like it just throws it out the window. But it it, it yeah. makes total sense when you have the practical experience. Because like we all see it. You're hundred percent right. Like the, the common thought process for like measuring range of motion is it's orthopedic, right? And every, so everybody, whenever you learn assessment, they say orthopedic assessment. And what they mean is joint range of motion. And I think the best thing you can do is depending on the person you're working with, for example, you're working with a neurological client, you're working with an athlete, you're working with somebody in pain, or you work with somebody who just wants to move better. You have to interpret the range of motion differently. From a neurological perspective, you got to think, okay, this nervous system is jacked up. It does not want to produce external rotation because the pelvis is so far forward because they're so sympathetically driven. They don't have the ability to produce external rotation. So they have to lock up certain degrees of motion to stabilize that part of the body because they can't control it. From a sports performance standpoint, this person is producing so much force into the ground that in order to overcome the amount of force going to the ground, they have to shift their center of gravity forward to put even more force in the ground. And that's how they get stronger or measurably stronger. It's not because they're efficiently stronger. It's because they've been asked to put a bar on their back and squat 330 pounds or whatever, so that they can get a one rep max that measures their relative strength versus saying, hey, 
you are not actually that strong. You're probably actually a 250 pound back squat strong. You just arched your back to shift your center of mass forward so that your pelvis is now over your feet, which then allows you to put more force into the ground because that's really where we pronate, kind of where the, where the shoelaces are. And now I could produce more force. But guess what? Eventually, that's going to catch up with you. Something potentially could happen. Or if you're a basketball player who needs to laterally cut or change directions, well, that lack of internal rotation is going to lead to something pretty ominous eventually. Or you cannot get into that lateral cut because that requires your pelvis to be in a certain position. And then lastly, persistent pain. It's like, hey, your back's hurting. Well, guess what? You've got no hip internal rotation. What does that mean? Your back is your internal rotation, mm. right? So we have to restore the range of motion. So I think it's, it's the way of viewing the range of motion or your assessment that is going to lead to the thought process of what exercise you're going to use to overcome it. Like sports performance, I may use a lunge. Persistent pain, I may get them into a lunge, but they're going to be laying on their side, right? Neurologically, yeah. you are laying on your back in a hook line position. I want you to feel my hand underneath your back as you breathe out. It's like I'm making them super aware and I'm reducing the amount of body parts they have to think about so their nervous system can be very focused and relaxed. So I think it's, it's more of a, a perception of how this, um, of how the assessment is depending on the context. Relativity, uh, Absolutely. Man. Sorry, Ash. I was going to say, I actually, <laughs> I was just sitting there being like, Alex, if I tearing down one rep maxes, <laughs> um, <laughs> powerlifters or anyone out there, don't listen. Um, now that's super fascinating. And like, I couldn't agree more with what you had to say. And I'm very interested because you talked about the nervous system and you also talked about the sensory component, um, kind of not being where it needs to be with a lot of these individuals. And, you know, with autoimmune, I guess it's a prime example of when the sympathetic nervous system is jacked up. Mm -hmm. um, obviously, the information you've taken from working with these individuals, you can also apply to other individuals who live quite a, um, a stressful, sympathetic lifestyle. What variable have you found is crucial in terms of making these changes that you do, whether it's um, on the gym floor or whether it's online to kind of stick? Because I, I know that one thing that I found early on was you'd make a change and then go back to there, the very you know sympathetic stress lifestyle. And some of these changes wouldn't necessarily stick or kind of maintain. Um, is there a variable that you kind of try to integrate into your approach? Like, is it saying where you're like frequency um, to kind of make that change with repetition? Yeah. 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 I think so. First of all, I'm not, I'm not poo pooing on the strength of the one rep max, right? That all I'm saying is that if you do one rep max, you should be seeing or you should be measuring the body, like the same kind of movement. Like, for example, like a squat, you should be seeing how that person does it even without a bar. Although I understand that when you add weight, the body changes. But what I'm saying is you should make sure that the body is mechanically moving properly before you mark down that, hey, I don't care about what your body does without a weight. I only care about what it does with this one rep max. And like, mm. that's, 
you're then getting a mismatch of information. It's like the bar is a constraint. So what I have to do is I have to push against the bar so I don't break, right? So it's just a measure of how much force am I resisting against this bar versus am I mechanically moving well? Because the one rep max is not going to be a determinant of future issues, no different than a body movement, like just like a, a body movement squat is going to determine anything, but a combination of both of them may make you a little bit more injury resilient, so to say. I understand there's no predictive way of identifying injury, but we can gain as much information as we can so that we can ensure that something doesn't happen. We're not overloading a system that can't handle it. So to go back to your question, I think there's a lot of different components to getting things to stick. First of all, I think there needs to be conscious awareness throughout the day. And that's hard for a lot of people, but let's just say I have you know, somebody who sits down all the time and they, you know, like even like, like a banker, very stressful job. Well, these people have to, so they're sitting down all day. They're getting bombarded with a bunch of information. Um, you know, their job is very stressful, but the stuff that I do in the session can translate to them sitting. For example, I know they have to sit. I'm not going to be able to change that. So what I get them to do is I say, okay, well, you know that exercise where I got you to lay on your back and you're pressing your back against the ground, you're pressing your heels against the ground so you feel your hamstrings, all that stuff. Well, do the same thing seated. What I want you to do is I want you to put a book underneath your feet to elevate your feet a little bit. That's gonna shift you back into your chair. I then want you to feel heavy, your back heavy against the chair and your sit bones right against the back of the chair. Then just to reset yourself, I just want you to push your ribs or push your body against your desk so you feel your back go heavy into the chair. It's like, okay, now they're doing something, they're aware of something throughout the day that they can do. Now I've got some type of neurological thing. I also always teach people how to stand because they say, oh, well, you know what, Alex, I got a stand up desk, no problem, I'll just stand up more. <laughs> like, wow, so true. you know, that's, that's also an issue because if you've got somebody who's got this huge arch in their back, the center of gravity is over their toes and they stand parallel, well, their default strategy is to either really slouch forward or to arch even more when they get tired. So I get them, to, I teach them how to stagger their stance when they're standing. And then again, if they've got a standing desk that's adjustable, I teach them where they should put the stand, where they should put the hands on the desk. And, relative to, you know, it shouldn't be up here, but it should be low as if you're reaching low all the time, because that's going to reinforce the exercise of them laying on their back, reaching low that I get them to do. So there's a transferability into their daily lives that could be contributing to this change in their body or whatever it is. The other thing to do is to keep it as minimal exercise as possible. If there's somebody who has no awareness of their body, I'm keeping them to do one or two exercises. So literally what I do is if I'm building a program out for somebody, I will assess them. I'll determine their range of motion, and then I'll give them two exercises to practice while I'm building out their program. I'm like your homework, there are these two exercises. 
And guess what? These exercises are then going to become your warm up and going to become your cool down. So I'm hitting it at different components. Then I'm saying, so let's say, for example, it is a, a hook line position. So they're laying on their back, their knees bent. So it looks like they're in a glute bridge. And I'm getting them to reach both hands towards their knees with their palms up. And then the other exercise I'm getting them to do is like a, I call it like a diamond bear, which essentially they're in quadruped position, hands and knees, and they have both hands together, they're basically creating a spade with their hand. The intention of that is to just internally rotate everything and they're squeezing a block. It's like, all right, well, guess what? This sets up the stage for a push-up. This sets up the stage for a press, right? The, the hook line position that is also chest press. That could be, um, you know, a standing lunge position. It's like, hey, you know how we said there's reference on your back? Well, I want you the same type of reference when you're doing a lunge or a split squat or a squat. But then I'll just add additional constraints in place. Like you're going to hold the dumbbell in front of you versus by your side because I'm going to get your body to self-organize itself. So I think for me, it's, using the assessment to determine what exercise I'm gonna give them. And then basically using those exercises and manipulating them in so many different ways that it looks like a strength training routine, but it's still reinforcing the same habits they do. And then the third shot to do like a perfect storm, I'm gonna get them being conscious throughout the day. And literally, so what happened to me one time is um, I, I teach them also how to stand too. So like I said, I get them to breathe out all the air. So the ribs come down. And then I say, okay, keeping your ribs there, I want you to stand up as tall as you can. And what that does is that allows them to exhale without hunching over, but they can stand up straight. So they feel that their posture is there instead of chest up, ribs back. So I was driving, I was driving down the street and I saw my client standing on the edge of the street, about to cross across the, <laughs> the sidewalk he's like, <clears throat> and he's just like, and so what I get him to do, cause for him breathing out all the air, I just couldn't get this. So I got him to just like exhale really quickly. Like he got punched in the stomach. So like a, right. And so it tenses his abs really quickly and then get tall. And so I saw him just like, he had a briefcase in one hand and he took both hands, put them on his ribs and then just did a and stand it up tall like that and then walk down the street. <laughs> it was the funniest thing. You saw it live. No, I saw it. I saw it live. <laughs> and so, and then I called them right after. I'm just like, I love the posture check. <laughs> but like, that's like that, right? It's just that constantly reinforces it throughout the day. So I think the one or two sets of six reps or something is, is not enough to, to rewire things, but if they're conscious throughout the day, it's going to help make it stick a little bit. So that, that's a difficult one though, because like, I agree totally with what you're saying about consciousness throughout the day, but then when it comes to act, so that, that's more with static positions, right? Because when it comes to active things like gait, as soon as you try to start consciously walking in, and in a certain yeah. way, the opposite happens, right? Exactly. So, so I hundred percent. So I cue them how to walk too. Like my first session with people is okay. I've assessed you. Here's a couple of exercises to work on. This is how you stand. This is how you sit. This is how you walk, right? So that I get every component. Yeah. The way that I get them to walk, again, we give them too many cues. It's, it's a no-go. 
I try to give them two, right? I try to give them two cues and the rest is a constraint. So for example, like yeah. I said, when they're sitting down, put a, put a, a book underneath your feet, right? Then what I want you to do is I want you to push yourself back in your chair. Then I want you to get tall. Those are the, those are the two cues, right? Mm -hmm. Two cues. When they're walking, they've always been taught just like chest back or uh, shoulders back, chest up. They've always been taught, hey, you want to hit the ground with your heel. So what they'll do is they'll walk, they'll hit their heel, but what's happening is their leg walk goes in front of them. So they hyperextend their knee. And then every time they're walking, it's like they're breaking themselves going forward. So what I get them to do, instead of them thinking about their heel, I just say, lead with your knee. So I, want, I don't want you to march your knee up. I want you to punch your knee forward. And what that's going to do is by flexing the knee or punching the knee forward, that's going to posterior tilt the pelvis. So now your foot lands just slightly in front of you, but still underneath your body. And you'll automatically hit heel to toe. And every time they do it right, they feel their glutes and hamstrings pushing them forward versus an aggressive knee hyperextension. So I'll cue them, punch the knee forward. Then what I want you to do is when you're walking, I want you to swing your arms enough that you can see your hand in the side of your eye. And it's not that far, it's not a lot. It's just basically in front of their body slightly. It's not like they're a soldier marching, but it's just, hey, I want you to swing your arms as you're walking so that you can see your hand and what the arm swing does is that allows them to create momentum to shift one side of their body back and shift the other side forward and to drive rotation. So now I'm getting this dissociation between their head, thorax, pelvis, and their foot is hitting the right position. It's hitting underneath them so that they don't hyperextend their knee. And then when they break themselves, their pelvis just falls over and then they complain about not having enough ankle flexion because the pelvis goes shooting way far in front of you. So it's, you're exactly right. So I'll teach them. How do you sit? How do you stand? How do you walk? And then here's the two exercises. I'll build you your program later. You're one of the very, you're one of the few people, like I do it as well, but I don't know that many people that, film gate regularly like you regularly film people's walking on assessment don't you and i know that sort of a lot of people in our industry use table tests and are quite biased to that and i think there's good reason for that um in in a nutshell what is your what are the main benefits you get out of filming gate because i find it like i find it awesome and like before i get people to send me gate before we start even yeah so i'll get them i'll get everybody to send me video of their gate I'll get them to send me, um, actually getting them to send me a video of their gate is something that I've recently added. Okay. I would say maybe in the past like few months or something. Do you get really bad gate videos? Cause I just keep oh, like, nice. oh, the angles, nice. the angles, everything's terrible. Like half oh, a yeah. frame. It is. And then it's like, or it's like very blurry or, or, you know, like, yeah, I get tons. And so yeah. I'll get them to resend it. I'll be like, Hey, I'm sorry. This is just, <laughs> I can't see anything here. Um, but what I'll do is I'll get them to send me a gate video. I'll get them to send me, um, maybe a squat video, um, from the back, the side and the front. 
And then I'll get them to send me full posture pictures, front, side, back, and then from the mid thigh to the toes, front yeah. and back. And the full posture allows me to see how their body's fully, um, you know, fully integrated or where, like how it's just standing. The thigh to the foot allows me to see where their center of mass is. It's like, all right, this foot is in toe off. They're very far forward. And then I, I pair that up with the full body posture. And I'm like, all right, well, you can see the pelvis in front of the toes. You can see what they're doing at their, at their shoulders to compensate. Um, and then I integrate it all together with gait. So from the gait perspective, I'm looking at <clears throat> how do their feet strike the ground? And when somebody sends me a video, I can do like the scrubbing where I watch it very slowly. And so I can see how do they hit the ground? How long is the foot on the ground for? If the foot peels off the ground really quickly, they don't have dorsiflexion because what happens is they hit their, essentially the pelvis is so far forward, they land on their forefoot and they come off the ground really quickly. So their tibia goes too far forward, too fast. I basically lose range of motion in the front of my ankle. So I've got to lift that foot up. But without fail, those people also don't have big toe extension. So you'll see when they land, their foot turns out sideways. And when they come up, they've got this huge inversion or like their heel pointing in as if they're rolling on the outside of their toes as they propel because they don't have the big toe extension. So really what they're doing is they're doing more of like a, a lateral step onto the other foot. And yeah, exactly. So it's like, <laughs> it's like a lateral lunge, right? Um, so yeah, so they won't be able to put off their big toe. So then, then they have to land on the other side. So now their pelvis dumps and just drops onto that side. So that foot turns out to the side as well. And then what you've got, is you've got a pelvis that is side yeah. to side or teeter tottering side to side. And so you see the hip hiking going, right? So I look at, again, like their feet, I look at how their foot strikes. I look at their foot position. I look at how long the foot's on the ground. Um, then I go up top and look at their pelvis. What's their pelvis motion looking like? Is it coming from their TL junction, which you'll get with some people is that it's coming from up top because their pelvis can't move. So it just moves as a block. And so now you see the side bending happening more in the lower part of the rib cage. So then for me, it's just like, all right, well, they're squeezed front to back in their pelvis. They're using their TL junction as their hip extension. So now I know if that space is closed, they do not have nine degrees of shoulder flexion. Then I'll look at how their torso rotates, how their arm swinging. Is one side constantly going forward as the other side comes back a lot? How do the creases in the shirt, and you'll see like the waves of their, of their the shirt. dead giveaway, isn't it? It is, it is. It's like, all right, well, every time the right foot strikes, I see all the waves going down to the right hip. But when the left foot strikes, I don't see anything. I see those right side of the hip creases still. So this person is staying on that right side as they strike, which means this right arm is not flexing forward. It is extending as the left arm is flexing forward, right? And mm. so now I know they do not have thoracic rotation. I have an idea of what their shoulder flexion is going to be like. I have an idea of what their cervical rotation is going to look like, what their hip range of motion, what their ankle mobility is, 
what their knee flexion is, right? So you can look at all these different components and gain a big picture. But for me, I don't want to make assumptions because I think that's the thing that I made on, that I made a mistake early on in my career as well, is I was looking for things, you know, like I take in certain systems that said, hey, everyone is turning a pelvis to the right. They will all have this type of range of motion in the hip. And I was like, all right, well, let me test the right hip adduction. All right, right hip adduction is good. They can touch the table. They're definitely in this posture. So I'm just going to follow this algorithm and we're good. I don't need anything else. And like, so I was just trying to, you know, I, I saw it. I, I was the hammer and I saw everyone else as the nail. Like, I'm just going to do one strategy all the time. And, you know, for me now, it's like, I don't care if this is what I'm seeing in their posture or their gait. I'm still going to assess the other things. But if I have a time constraint where, hey, this person's like, this person showed up 20 minutes late, right? I've only got 40 minutes to work with this person. All right, well, I'm going to just go after two measurements on the table, one measurement standing, and I've got all this previous information from the posture gate that I can make some decisions already. You know what I mean? So yeah, I think gate is a hugely underappreciated measurement because it's what people are doing all day. Right? Yeah. That's why, that's why I decided to ask. I didn't, I, I, <laughs> I didn't really want to ask anything assessment related, but since we kind of half got onto the topic just of, of that specific subcategory, like yeah. I just realized that not many people do it. And one of my mentors in Australia introduced me to it probably a year and a half ago, a year ago. And I just wouldn't go without it now because it just tells me so much. Like it organically, it's an active posture is what I tell them. And 100%. Yeah. I do that with running too. Like I'll, if somebody says that they're a runner, and they'll say, like, you have to. yeah, is I'll ask them what their goal is. And they're just like, you know, I keep on getting this right knee pain when I'm running. And I'm like, all right, great. Send me a video of front, back, side. So the front view, don't worry about your torso. Just let me see what your knees are doing. Like from hip to your feet, like as if someone's going underneath a treadmill type thing. And from the back, let me see it. From the side, let me see it. And I'll do the same thing. I'll just scrub it and I'll, I'll, I'll trim pictures or videos of the certain things I'm looking at and showing them. I think there's another thing to answer your question too, Ash, what we asked me before is how do I get the stick? I try to make them as aware as possible of the things that I'm seeing too and why I'm doing things. So they understand even when they're walking, it's like, look, I'm seeing that your left foot is on the ground a lot longer than your right foot. That means, I'm sorry, your right foot's on the ground a lot longer than your left foot. That means you don't have any hip extension on the left side, which means you're using your back all the time. That also means you're always going on that right leg. So what we're going to do is let's get you off the right leg by giving you an exercise that pushes you to the left. Then let's give you an exercise to keep you heavy on that left side. That's why I give you a, you know, a split squat, a rear foot of a split squat on the right. I'm getting you to hold it on your right hand. So I push mm. you that right side. And so I think awareness of that as well provides them with some understanding of why we're doing things. And I always, at the beginning of the session, or at the beginning of the session for 10, 15 minutes, I show them exactly the things that I'm looking at so that the time they spent sending me these pictures and videos, 
was useful. Like it actually helped with their treatment. So they're like, so anytime I ask them, Hey, I need you to send me this. They're more than willing because there's a reason behind it. Mm. So I think it's buy-in is how it also, because if we're just manipulating the nervous system, the nervous system has to understand what we're doing and it has to understand you know, what the exercises are going to do to change the pattern that it is presenting with strategy, pattern, posture, whatever you want to call it. That's what we're looking at. And movement is just a dynamic pattern. It's all it is. And we're just trying to manipulate it by providing an exercise that gives a different pattern so that we can say, Hey, this is the pattern that I actually want you to use. Because the pattern that you're using is just one pattern. If you were to, you know, if you, again, if you're playing soccer or football, um, you know, if I need you to do a lateral cut, that's a, every time you do a lateral cut, it's a different movement. I need to expose you into a position that allows that to happen. Doesn't mean I need to train a thousand different variations of lateral cut. That's not what, that's not what your brain, that's not how your brain processes information needs to understand the central premise or the principle of how to manage the force. What position is my foot, shin, knee, hip, torso. And then it, when it's in a similar position, it will reproduce that pattern. Our brain thinks mm. the pattern doesn't think in individual aspects because it's too much information. Nah, I'm just sitting here being like, I love this. I love how everything you said today, it's just, re again, reinforcing that pattern, whether it's yeah. from the, the start with the, the intake process to the exercise and the assessment to kind of like how you take these, I guess, main things you want to work on mm -hmm. and you just kind of disguise them throughout the, the program, but it has the same underlying, you know, principle of what you want to change. Um, and I love how you also kind of address those, those outside the session things like, you know, with the city and the standing. Um, and there was one thing I wanted to ask you about kind of like feet. And I'm curious to kind of see, cause I personally think obviously there's a lot of things to consider when it comes to the foot, mm -hmm. obviously, you know, you've got, where are they in uh, space? Like, is there a mass forward, which is obviously going to change how the foot articulates with the ground. But then you also got to look at, I guess, uh, a focal strategy, which is like, can that foot actually move? And that yeah. obviously is going to be potentially influenced from up above as well. Yeah. When it comes to kind of like making changes at the foot, obviously, I'm going to assume that you're going to make changes above, which is going to probably impact the center of mass. And you're probably going to try and get the foot moving so the bones can articulate to take the, the muscles through a full range of motion. Mm -hmm. How do you kind of go about is this where you kind of reinforce, I guess, the walking strategy to kind of, I remember Bill Hartman first talking about was like interference. And for me, in my head, I'm like, all right, say someone does 10,000 steps. That's potentially a lot of interference to the changes that you're going to try and make at the feet. Yeah. And I'm wondering whether you look at maybe shoe wear or what kind of like strategies maybe from a, do you implement that walking strategy when you are trying to make that, I guess, changes at the foot? Because um, I've noticed that depending on the person and the interventions you provide, again, it can be short lasting because I feel because of all this interference. Yeah. Yeah. I, I, I don't cue 
gate too much. Like the way that I cue gate, as I mentioned before, like the arm swing and the knee, that's about it. Because what my thought process is, is that your body should be self-organizing every time it strikes the ground. And what I'm going to do is I'm going to put the body in a position that allows for gait to be more effective. So basically I use the assessments to determine what's going on. I don't use the assessments as exercises, yep, right? Yep. So from the foot perspective, so what I'll do is I, because I look at the foot from the picture perspective, like I said, from an assessment, I have an idea of where they are in space. Is there calcaneal, is there calcaneus everted, inverted? How is that related to their tibia, like the proximal tibia? Is their proximal tibia externally rotated, internally rotated? What's the big toe doing? Is the big toe have a little bunion on it? Is it hugging the second toe? Um, if it's hugging the second toe, we've got a bunion. I know they cannot propel off that big toe. Um, what's the fifth toe doing? The fifth med head also has its own independent joint axis, just like the first med head. The other three toes, they move as a unit. So I think of these as like a paddle, like, like an anominate, right? Whereas like the other two, like the thumb and the pinky, well, we've got a hip and we've got a sacrum. Those move independent from the pelvis, right? So we start looking at the foot and we can make some associations as to what's happening at the pelvis just by that, right? We've got, you know, a thumb that could be arguably considered a femur or a hip joint, right? So if if it's abducted, sorry, if it's adducted, which hugging towards that second toe, then I know that I've got a femur that's probably externally rotating. So now then I know I don't have any internal rotation of the hip because I cannot extend the big toe. Can you maybe just explain why that equals an externally rotated femur? So if you when I take my toe and I my big toe and I hug it towards that second toe. What that's going to do is there's going to be, there's, there's muscles called your adductor pollicis, right? And mm -hmm. if you actually look at the bottom of the foot, it looks like number seven. Like that's what like the muscles look like. It looks like number seven. And what that muscle does is it'll pull the second toe towards that second, sorry, pull the first toe towards the second toe. And then all the toes will eventually, if it keeps on going, they'll crumple up and create a very high arch. So when that big toe goes towards the second toe, I've got this moment of external rotation of the foot. So the foot starts to turn out. Then the tibia will turn out. And eventually if I go far enough, that femur will also turn out. Yeah. But what it's telling me is, hey, my pelvis is going so far forward. I need to break myself from falling on my face. So I'm going to turn my feet out in order to do that. In hockey, when, when we really are taught how to skate to start, they call it a snowplow. And that's just like, you know, stop yourself from falling forward, right? Um, it's the same premise. It's just your feet are turning out. And so your femurs are going to turn out with it. And that's going to be secondary to a pelvis that's going forward, right? I'm not sure if you guys show like video or anything like that, but it's just like, it's like I take the bottom of the pelvis, I push it forward, I keep the femur where it is, and you can see it just externally rotates by going forward. Yeah. And that's mm. it's turning out, right? Yeah. Um, yeah. So the best way to think of it is like a sway back. Somebody's got a sway back, everything yep. just turns out. 
Um, so yeah, start, start looking at the association. Then I look at the pelvis. Then I look at the rib cage in terms of like hip flexion, straight leg raise, shoulder flexion, internal, external rotation. I look at these measurements and I can determine the shape of that structure. Now, how I use the foot, we have to think that you know, we were, we've always been taught uh, proximal stability equals distal mobility, right? But force tra travels from our foot or our hands to our shoulder. So how that foot drives force to the hip is going to make the hip adapt as well. So if my foot's constantly striking on the, or I'm rolling off my foot because I don't have the big toe extension, well, my pelvis is going to shoot forward because that, because the certain muscles that I'm leveraging based on that foot contact, because my foot is just going to trigger a chain reaction of certain muscles, depending on where the pressure is, that's going to force my pelvis to push forward. I'm going to facilitate my glutes, my hamstrings, which are going to shove me forward. I'm going to arch my back. I'm going to use my erectors, my lats. So what I do is I determine, okay, well, this foot is like this. The hip is like this. The thorax is like that. Well, I know that I need to manipulate the position of the foot in order to make sure the force going to the pelvis is what it should be, depending on if it's heel strike, if it's mid stance, if it's toe off. Sometimes you get a foot, as I said, that's so turned out, you can't even use the foot. The foot is not providing enough or good enough information to the hip. So I've got to change the shape of the pelvis and the rib cage first before I can stand them up and have their feet on the ground or press their foot against the wall. So I may do something like a like an arm bar, if you're familiar with what that is, mm. or some type of you know rolling without the with like basically like like the foot is in like an open chain environment. Mm. Where I'm laying on one side, I'm rolling on one side. I may be doing like a side plank or something, where my foot aren't where my feet aren't engaged right now. It's more going at the center. Let's change the shape of the thorax and the pelvis. Then I've created space up top saying, okay, in order for me to internally rotate my hip, I need my anominate to close. I need my thorax to laterally compress. So I'm going to do exercises that do that. Now I've created the space. I've taught the rib cage and the pelvis how to do it. Now let's integrate it with the foot. Now what I may do is I may do a foot on the wall cross connect, or I may do a, you know, um, like a half kneeling where my knee is going towards the wall, but I put something underneath my toes. So I maximize dorsiflexion internal rotation on my ankle. So my foot doesn't have to turn out every time I hit a certain degree of ankle flexion. So by being in that 90 degrees of hip flexion, we know that muscles change their orientation or change their contraction to become more internal rotators at around like 60 to 90. So I get that the hip, so not, but the hip's already been taught that. The hip knows how to get into an internally rotated position. Then I bend the knee. Well, that requires tibial internal rotation. Okay, great. So I'm getting the IR there. And then dorsiflexing the ankle, I get IR at the ankle. And then I'm going forward and back, teaching my center of mass how to maintain the internal rotation when the center of mass goes forward 
and when it goes back, so I don't have to turn on my foot. So for me, I will use the foot to change the pelvis, or I will use the pelvis to change the foot. It just determined, it's just a matter of how limited they are. If they're very stiff, I can't use the foot. Their center of mass is too far forward. If they have some mobility, but we need to restore more, then I will use the foot. Because the foot is either something that is going to push, propel me forward, or it's going to shove me backwards. Yeah, depending right. on how you go about it. Exactly. It's and and that's really what it is. As you mentioned before, Ash, it's it's a center of gravity game, right? Like I'm, am I trying to get back on one side? Am I trying to shove my center of gravity back on my left, push my right hip forward, or propel my right side forward, or the opposite? You know, this this whole thing about we need to always go. We're always on the right side. Our, our left hip is always forward. You know, I, I've seen people who've got a right hip that's forward too. And so what we need to do is we need to bring that right side back first before we can push them to the left. It's not always a push to the left, right? And yeah, that's a bias that I, I just, I, I don't know if I can fully agree with. Like, I think when you're, as you were saying, like if you're, for those that think like 100% of the population a set like that i think it's dangerous territory because again you've already you've already whether you think that or not you've already diagnosed yeah. or assessed before you've even looked at them and i think that's really uh yeah a bit dangerous yeah yeah and like i like we've been talking about patterns right <clears throat> just based on the amount of people that i've worked with i see them as four or five different patterns of a pelvis position and how that relates to the thorax and all of them change how the joints move right mm -hmm. like i see somebody who's got like a bilateral orientation where both sides are going forward equally i see one where the left hip is going more forward compared to the right i see another one where the left hip is hiked up and the right hip is more forward so it's almost like a tuck under with the right hip and then i see variations of all of those and how that relates to the torso because if my right, if my left hip is being shoved forward, I have to lean back somewhere. Where am I going to lean back? Onto the right side, right? And so, conversely, I find that sh like you see shoulder injuries. I'm sure you, you guys both would have seen how much shoulder injuries influence something like that too. Hundred percent. Like it was shoulder injuries with poor rehab. Yes. Where they, where like, yeah. Like I had one guy I was like, yeah, I was 18 and I just like just finished school and I wanted to go out with all my mates and like really really smashed my my humorous and i just wanted to get back out there with the boys so i didn't do anything i'm like yeah well you're paying for it now pal so, exactly yeah oh yeah they're just like yeah i've uh i've sprained my ankle before and I'm like oh what'd you do for it it's like nothing i just let it heal it's like <laughs> okay well yeah no wonder why you're feeling some stuff going on right yeah. but no 100 percent. it's you know it's overuse or constantly driving one strategy or because remember, like if you have an injury or you've got some type of bone break, you've changed the constraint at that, at that place. And so you may never get full range of motion in that area, or it's going to take a lot longer. But as you said, this will be the driving force. And yeah. a lot of times they won't feel in their shoulder if they've, if, if it's been not rehabbed or not rehabbed well, they've had it for a long time. Um, 
That's why I always ask for an injury report or injury history. It's like, oh, you broke your collarbone when you were 18 and you're 40 now. You've got left hip pain. It's like, all right, well, let's take a look at how that right shoulder is moving. And, you know, without fail, it's usually not moving very well. Oh, I've seen it so often. So yeah. often. Yeah. Yeah. I just want to ask you one last question about the foot and then um, maybe we'll wrap up with, with something nice and fun and, and chilled. But just regarding like uh, first met, so that first toe joint yeah. and, and bunions or like the Hallux valgus presentation, what mm. do you see? Like that's a, obviously a pretty common as far as pre like foot presentations or let's say like foot issues goes. Mm. Um, what would you... What have you seen from your experiences to be the most common reason for such a presentation? And I know it's not that simple, but let's, we're talking again, commonalities or percentages. What's the most yeah. common thing you've seen? Um, it's a center of gravity that's shifted forward, right? So if ever I see a, I think there's a few things. One, um, women who wear heels, they, yeah. they wear heels a lot, whether they're older and, you know, that they're later in life and they've worn heels all their life or women who are currently working wearing heels in, um, to work or whatever. Um, so the kind of footwear, I guess. Um, I played hockey, so um, my foot's got a little bit of a bunion too. So because the skate is very rigid and they mold it so that the skate is actually a little bit smaller than your shoe. And so your toes get a little crumpled together and because your ankle is locked in a boot, there's not a lot of dorsiflexion that's happening. You're kind of locked into one position. So what you have to do is you have to constantly push off of the inside part. Of yeah. the and so you got bunions there. Um, but to be honest, I would say the number one factor is if I'm seeing someone with bunions, that center of gravity is really far forward because it is the last thing to go. Bunions happen because I roll off of the inside part of my, I roll off the inside part of my big toe in order to substitute for my lack of big toe extension. Yeah. So when I'm walking, I roll off of the inside and that gives me my big toe extension. Which is essentially what you were saying earlier. Exactly. Yeah. 100%. And so for that, it's like, all right, drive the center of gravity backwards and then see what clears up. If you've got a structural change at the actual first med head, it may be difficult to, you know, if they need like surgery or something, it may be difficult to change that, but you can still help with the mobility of the foot because really what a bunion is, is you've got a first med head going one way and you've got the phalange joint or the big toe joint going another, and that creates a twist. And so if you understand that, what you can do is you can, untwist the joint yeah as, as it were as it as if it's like a knee because the the big toe is like a knee right if you actually look at the joints i mean if you look at the bottom of the big toe like look at that yeah behind the knee right so you can you you can determine you can look at the big toe and be like all right i need to untwist the big toe a little bit because what will happen sometimes is with normal pronation, for example, you need a heel to go outwards, evert, and the forefoot is gonna go with it, right? With a someone who's got a bunion, it is, the, it is a twist in the foot. 
you've got a calcaneus going the opposite way as the forefoot. And so what has to happen is now you roll off the big toe so that because the big toe is being essentially twisted and torqued because it's not matching with that calcaneus. And that is all secondary to center of gravity being too far forward. Yeah. And it's essentially, it's a symptom. It's a, it's a reaction. Yeah. This is, that is where the person is applying force into the ground. That is their internal rotation strategy because they cannot do the hit. Yeah. Super, super interesting and uh, concise summary. Thanks for that. I don't know. How's Ash doing? I think it's internet. He's a bit down on it's internet. Frozen. Well, last question. Um, how, what, what are a couple of things on the bucket list? What are a couple of things that you haven't done that you're dying to do? I don't know if you've traveled much. Um, yeah. Like in general, business, life. Just life, man. We're, we're, life. we're humans at the end of the day. Business is a part of it. That's it. Uh, well, you know, speaking, speaking of the fact that you're in Germany, one thing that I've always wanted to do is to go to Munich to Oktoberfest. Oh, it's the oh, wildest thing, man. I love, you know, one thing I love is beer. Like yeah. good quality beer. Not like, you know, not like the brand names or stuff, but like wheat beer is my favorite. I love to go to Oktoberfest. Me and my wife were talking about that because we're supposed to do some in-person courses. We're supposed to go to like Spain and a couple other courses, but like with COVID, who yeah. the heck knows when that's going to happen? So love to be able to to travel to europe in october go to oktoberfest um that's one thing i've always wanted to do is oktoberfest another thing honestly is to go to australia i've always wanted to go to australia check it out looks awesome met a lot of good australians couldn't you guys so we're, we're like all right last <laughs> but it's funny you say that because that's like the two things that have uh like i'm from australia growing up there living in germany and I've yeah. been to I've been to Oktoberfest and it's literally like it's heaven. It's just oh. it's it's God's gift just for two or three days. And then there's a second one in um in Stuttgart, which is where my parents are from, which is a, a couple of hours west of Munich. And yeah. that's with a, a lot less tourists, but it's a little bit more kind of original. And that just yeah. goes off just as much. And I went there with oh, my yeah. parents a few years ago and we all just got completely lit. It was the funnest thing ever. Oh, but um, yeah, man, if you go, we'll have to definitely, I'll be the, I'll be the first person know. to get a train down. Yeah, I'll absolutely. let you know, you can, you can show us around. And uh, absolutely. I've always wanted to travel around Switzerland and Austria. Yeah. That area as well. I mean, which is kind of like in the same area, like Bavaria, yeah. Austria, Switzerland. Um, what else on the bucket list? I'm actually going, I'm actually going skiing there in a couple of weeks, oh. um, flying into Salzburg and then driving, I think like an hour, hour and a half to go skiing there. So I am Mate. excited. Yeah. I'll send you a few videos. Yes, please. do. <laughs> <laughs> but you know what the, the problem, the, the, the nice thing about you in Europe is you're able to, to fly, um, you know, fly around or take a train. Yeah. It's not a big deal for us. We're in Canada. It's the second largest country in the world based on land mass for us to fly. So if we want to go to Vancouver, which is the other side of the country, I'm not even on one side of the country. I'm somewhere close to the middle. It's about five and a half hour flight. Yeah. Right. It's like the same flight, like say same amount of time as it would take to get to like England or even Berlin, I think, or Frankfurt. Yeah. Um, it's crazy. So we can't really travel much. If we want to drive, you know, it's like a, it's like an eight hour drive. It's, it's decent. And there's not much. That's, that's the thing, man. Like I, um, like I think about if I'd want to move back to Australia in the near future, I'm like, the opportunities are too good. Like in flight, I flew to Portugal in December, super easy book flights to, we paid 
30 euros to fly to Latvia return. And you're just like, this is, this is too easy. Like it's unfair. Yeah. It is. So. Yeah. To fly within country, you'd think that we'd get a good deal. It's no, it's like 800 bucks to fly to Vancouver. Same within with us. Own, yeah. You know what I mean? Within our own country. <laughs> so Europe is just, it makes so much sense. You go there and you can, you can go to five different countries and it costs you the same amount as your plane ticket there. Yeah. Right. Absolutely. You know, it's, it's not bad. So, <laughs> I would say, I'd say like a lot of my bucket list is, is traveling. Um, and unfortunately with COVID I've been deprived of that for the past, you know, two and a half years. Have you traveled a lot? In like growing up? Yeah. Just generally. Oh yeah. 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 yeah, yeah. My family was, uh, you know, one thing my, my parents wanted us to do as kids is to gain as much exposure to different cultures as possible. And my parents, my parents are accountants, so they're, they're, they're very good with their money. Um, but what they would do is they, they, they would save every year. So we'd go on a trip. And a lot of the things that we did because we were kids and it was easy for them too, was we'd go on cruises. Amazing. And I've got family in, in, um, in England. So we usually depart from there quite often. So we'd go there, visit them, and then we'd go on a cruise. But there was it was our ability to see a bunch of different places like Mediterranean cruises. Um, and it was more like a taste, right? It was like, all right, I would definitely go back to this place. This is good that we're on a boat for this place. Cause I would not want to fly here and find out this is what it is. <laughs> you know what I mean? <laughs> so, um, no, but you know, it's allowed me to see the pyramids. It's allowed me gone to, to Turkey. Um, I was able to, you know, go to Rome, was able to, you know, travel to Canary Islands and party it up in Mallorca a little bit, you know, and uh, <clears throat> I don't know if you guys have heard of Mallorca and the, the party. Yeah. Oh man, I've been there too. It was, yeah, there's the, there's the German side and then there's the English side in the city in Palma. And yeah, I stayed in the German side and my mate, we, we were both, he's Australian as well. And we said, because Germans tend to like Australians, or at least so we thought back then when we were a bit more mature. Like when we're around Germans, we'll just speak with a really loud Australian accent. And when we're around Aussies, we'll just pretend we're German and speak German. So we can just get the best of both worlds and just play the, like, like manage the situation in that way. It was hilarious. Oh man, when I would travel, I used to wear like a, like a Canadian something, like show that I was Canadian. And they'd be like, oh, this guy's Canadian. All right, we like Canadians. Okay. And so we get like, Sometimes we'd like get to skip the line or something. And, but it was just so I would know that I was like a tourist. Sometimes it worked out, other times it didn't, right? <laughs> but, you know, but it's, uh, no, I mean, like, I think, I think me and my wife miss traveling the most. And I think traveling would be, be on the bucket list. And um, I think going to Great Barrier Reef, touring around yeah. that area. I mean, I guess that's kind of like a tourist trap for, for the Aussies and they know that. What even, what even exists of it? Oh yeah, exactly. Yeah. And then Hawaii would be the other one. Hawaii. It's not too far. I mean, still, it's like, it's like 14 hour flight for us. Is it, is it that far? Okay. I thought it might've been around 10, but yeah. Because we're, because we're on the other side of the country. Like it's so far across. Yeah. yeah. We got to fly to Vancouver and then from Vancouver, it's about six hours. So it's, it's wild. Yeah. Yeah. Right. Where, <laughs> where can, where can we find you? Yeah. So, um, primarily I'm on Instagram. Um, my handle is at Alex, my first name dot F for my last name. Um, 
that's really where I'm doing things now. I just released my own podcast, R2 podcast, R2R podcast. And uh, yeah, other than that, I just run courses, talk about my principles, evolve mentorship and coming out with lower body program whenever this airs. Like right now it's coming out for next week. So first week of February and uh, yeah, I just primarily on Instagram, hopefully to get on YouTube soon. Hell yeah. No TikTok? Uh, no TikTok, not yet. <laughs> I don't understand it, man. I feel it. You know what? I, I look at TikTok and I feel so old, but I'm not that old. Like all these kids who are just doing these dances. I'm like, I can't picture myself. I move like a, like, like a walking refrigerator. I, can't, I don't think I can, I can show as much grace as they do. I started, I started fucking ticking and talking last week, but it's just like, it's, it's, I don't know. I'm just, I'm just basically transferring Insta content over but I'm, I'm i'm planning to try and be pretend to be funny or something that's just like yeah. i don't think i'm that funny so <laughs> I don't know, like, like i don't have the dance or the comedy to be able to do that so i think it's uh no i think i think you know eventually i probably will do tiktok i'll probably just like as you said like transfer the information there see what happens but man like as you said i, I don't know how much time I can commit. Like I, I got to find time to be able to do that. It's a different beast and understanding trends and keeping up with trends and music trends, all this other stuff. <laughs> just become, just make it, just make an investor's TikTok. Exactly. Yes. <laughs> exactly. Tell people how to invest stocks and understand business. Yeah. No, that, or, even, that'd be or even better wait, be a tasting one. I reckon, exactly. that, I, reckon, I reckon that would be your forte. I reckon. Oh man. If I, you know what? That's a good idea. I'm just gonna, I'm just gonna record myself with like some music in the background, just drinking beer. <laughs> you have to get a massive frock. You have yeah. to get a massive frock mustache. It doesn't I'm just count. gonna do like a gladiator, like thumbs up, thumbs down. You know I mean? <laughs> Goes viral. Exactly. Oh, that's awesome, man. That's yeah. awesome. Nah, thanks each for coming on, Alex. It's, um, it's, it's always a pleasure hearing you. You speak and um, <laughs> I just can't get over the TikTok thing. Yeah, um, we should set up another half an hour and, and do make a rule that we're not allowed to talk anything about the industry. We're only allowed to talk about beer, travel, and and investing money. I like that. Talk about Bitcoin. Talk about cannabis companies. I like it. <laughs> the man. Have a great afternoon, brother. Yeah. Thanks, guys. Really appreciate it. Take care. Get you, man. The Between Two Lines podcast, talking about performance, life, and everything in between. Featuring your hosts, Johnny Stahl and Ash Hamilton.